Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. I'm here with two team members, Matthias and Evan, and today we're sitting down with the lecturer in the Earth and Environment Department, Professor James Baldwin. Uh, today what we want to talk about is a recent plan that emanated from a conservative uh, group of conservative economists and former cabinet officials uh, regarding climate change and climate policy over the next couple of years. Um, this is really uh, one of the first very substantive proposals to come out while uh, conservatives have been in power uh, sort of across the country at all levels. And so we want to dig into it and see uh, what prospects it has uh, for success. Uh, but before we get there, uh, we want to talk to Professor Baldwin's uh, to Pro Professor Baldwin about uh, his recent research on climate change and, and sort of the models he's building. So uh, with that, I would like to ask Professor Baldwin, what are you working on right now? And um, what is it? What does it portend about our future? <laughs> sure. Uh, so uh, my current research is mostly focused on trying to figure out where we're likely to go in terms of carbon emissions. So I deal with the the people side of of uh, how we use energy and how that relates to um, the emissions of greenhouse gases, particularly carbon. Um, and it's one of the fundamental points of uncertainty in terms of thinking about what the future of climate holds for us. Um, historically, the way that climate scientists have dealt with that uncertainty is they create these scenarios, basically <clears throat> a bunch of stories about how the future might unfold. Um, but they're you know, kind of guesses. They have different assumptions about what policies we might use, what technologies we might have, um, how big the population is, how rich we are, etc. Um, and so I've been working with my colleague, Professor Sue Wing, to develop these probabilistic models which say, if the future unfolds the way the past has, where are we likely to be? Um, That's a good question, actually. Where are we likely to be if well, uh, the future <laughs> unfolds like the past has? <laughs> so the scenarios which are used by climate modelers, there's uh, the best case scenarios. The best case scenarios assume that we get clean technology very, very quickly, um, that society gets rich very quickly, um, because actually, you know, that we can afford, I'm talking about the world, global society gets rich very quickly, so we can afford clean technologies, um, and that population stabilizes and starts to, to shrink very quickly. Um, the worst case scenario is basically assume that we don't have that income convergence, basically that, you know, we get increasing disparities, we don't adopt clean technologies. Um, the best case scenarios are climate change is a significant inconvenience. Right, that's kind of the optimistic scenario. Is it's it's going to cost us money. It's going to be an inconvenience. People, you know, that inconvenience will imply, you know, people's lives being destroyed, uh, but on a on a fairly contained scale. The worst case scenarios are an existential threat to civilization, and that's mean. In, I mean existential in the literal sense, meaning they challenge the existence of modern society the way we think of it. <clears throat> so I want to get into real quick this issue of population that came up in, uh -huh. in the model that you were talking about, because I don't think people pay enough attention to this. Yeah. Um, there are all sorts of population policies and, and variances from, you know, from on one side, you know, like a one-child policy in China to yeah. simply sort of encouraging birth control in other countries. But no matter what it is, I don't think people pay enough attention to the way um, not just consumption habits affect our carbon footprint, but, but population affects our carbon yeah. footprint. Um, what is sort of the status of uh, population control, to use a, a really oh, unsavory term? I don't think, so, I, you know, when I was an undergrad, this was a huge topic. We need to get population control. But here's the reality of population growth, right? The United States, we're shrinking. European Union is shrinking. China is shrinking. Most of Latin America is shrinking. 
So the only place where there's significant population growth right now is really sub-Saharan Africa. And that is also likely to diminish. So I, I, um, I don't think that we need to be advocating for any type of drac draconian population control policies. That um, the UN uh, population's program, program expectation is that you, know, you and I, we, we are all going to live through the world's population peak and we're going to see the decline. Um, just that the current demographic trends are pushing us towards a smaller population. We're going to see the world is most crowded. And so, and, and so I guess my question on that level would be, so if we do see that peak, what does that peak imply for us in terms <laughs> of outcome? So the most likely peak scenario is a population somewhere around 9 billion people. It could be, yeah, and there's, there's a range, because in what determines population, it's our reproductive behavior, and that's, you know, tied to a lot of cultural and economic influences. Right. But the way things are going is that people are having fewer children, right? The average American woman has less than two children now. And it takes two to tango. So if the average woman's having less than two, that means we're not replacing the male and female partner. It means we're shrinking. Europe, same story, right? Japan, same story. China, same story. Um, but nine billion people is two billion more than today. And that's three times the population in 1950. So I think one of the things, like the scale of that, it's, it, I always like to, to bring that up, because anybody who is, you know, uh, any of our baby boomers, you know, to understand like their childhood, we're talking about three times as many people as when they were, you know, when they were being born. Um, and there was just over a billion people in 1900, right? So, you know, it's, it's like nine Earths of 1900, it's three Earths of 1950. Um, it's a lot of people, and it's a lot of resources in, in the flip side of this is that there's a lot of good news on Earth. There's a lot of positive things happening. I mean, you know, we live in a political climate where everyone's talking doom and gloom, but, you know, there are fewer people that are starving as a percentage of the human population now than ever before. Um, the UNDP is projecting that at current rates of the decline of poverty that we could see, like, essentially zero poverty in our lifetimes. I mean, there. Which in, and of itself, I, which in and of itself mm -hmm. is an incredible, incredible oh, yeah. development within the context of human history. Absolutely. That, that, like you said, doom and gloom political context today, yeah. but if you look at the, the kind of the macro data, objectively, yeah. we're in terms, in terms of kind of the, your conventional metrics about wealth and about well-being, poverty, et cetera, et cetera. That's good news. And violence, so uh, I, I can't remember his his first name, but uh, Pinker, uh, the, uh, Pinker, yeah. the, 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 you know, the the book, uh, the um, Better Angels of Better, Nature. Yes, Better Angels of Nature. You know, he argues that you know violence is down, that we're the least violent generation to ever exist, and so there's a lot of you know macro good news, but that that has been achieved through our use of energy resources. Right. And nine billion, two billion more people trying to achieve that is an enormous amount of energy consumption. So if we can't figure out how to do that, you know, that's the worst case scenarios. And so where, where are we in terms of figuring that out as far as you're concerned and what your research tells you? In terms of where the future holds, well, the, what I'm working on right now is not yet peer-reviewed and published. Okay. <laughs> so take it, yeah. take it with that grain of salt. Uh, but basically, uh, our model puts us among the higher-end scenarios, among the worst-case scenarios. Um, that it really you know, puts us at those levels where we are looking at, you know, an existential threat. existential threat to our existence. So uh, <clears throat> the way the popular uh, culture understands this, or the least, at least the way it comes through journalism, is um, you know in, in degrees Celsius above uh, pre-industrial levels. So right. in your in your model, what does it look like we're aiming for? Because uh, you know the UN 
in the 1990s, we, the world basically agreed to two degrees, and we don't seem anywhere close to that. So what is your model? Uh, oh, so we don't go, uh, my, 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 it's an emissions model. Right. Oh, okay, so okay, it's gotcha, about emissions, gotcha. not, so a climatologist would take that and yeah. then translate that okay. into carbon. Okay. Um, so, but we are the worst case emission scenarios, which which you know entail the possibility of like extreme temperature increases. We're talking about you know right. uh, levels that are comparable to changes from the last ice age, you know, big big time. And, and the um, the worst case scenarios make, according to some recent research, uh, like the Arabian Peninsula uninhabitable. Right. I just can't live there anymore. Um, the worst case scenarios mean catastrophic sea level rise, the worst case scenarios mean, you know, difficulty challenges, widespread famine, difficulty in feeding ourselves. So population movement, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah. So, so if we can actually spell those out, because this is, this is I, I guess, the, the, the one issue I have with the way that, that, that climate change is kind of portrayed and characterized in popular media and just in our culture in general is that we all know that it's an issue, but few people want to kind of go to the extent in describing to what extent it is an issue. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the, uh, there's this TV show by the name of, I think it's called the Newsroom or something like, like yeah, that, written yeah. by Aaron Sorkin, <laughs> and there's this segment in which there's this leading, leading figure in the Environmental Protection Agency who actually goes on national television and is interviewed about climate change and just straight up loses it by basically saying, Look, we're we're done. Like there, there's, no, there's no shot. We're all screwed. Like and the, and the the journalist on air is trying to get him to kind of calibrate his uh, his uh, his claims, and he's like, no, no, no. Um, I'm entirely serious. I've dedicated my life to this, and we're all screwed. I, I just wanted to come out and say it, right? And so that that in and of itself was kind of refreshing for me when I was watching it. It was like, okay, well, finally we have somebody who's willing to go so far as to say that look, you know, this is a significant challenge for us in a way that's really going to threaten us, right? Yeah, but I, I would argue, so I'm not that, I'm not fearing the end of the world. Okay. Because this, so, it's easy for someone like me who studies climate change and who studies environment to be very pessimistic about the future of the planet, right? It's it's the, the, the way, it's the, the tool that I wield is basically environmental science knowledge, right? And, and understanding of economics. And that could lead to be very, very depressed. But we've always faced existential threats, right? When I was growing up, it was, you know, the Cold War and are we facing nuclear annihilation, which was legitimate, right? So it would just take one wrong move by the wrong person, pressing the wrong button at the wrong time, and it would have been the end of the world. So humanity's always faced existential threats. So I'm, I'm not so pessimistic. I think this is entirely solvable. Okay. So it, it is severe, though, you know, and I think... Um, it's kind of like, um, it's 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 something that if we don't take serious, we fail to act. It could be catastrophic. But we we know what's we know where we're going. We don't know exactly where we're going, which is one of the big challenges. There's a lot of uncertainty. Okay, so so on that so on that so on that point, the the point of optimism, yeah. right? So in your in your perfect world, best case scenario, starting right now, what would we see? Kind of implemented on a national scale, a global scale, um, that that would actually start to move us in the right direction in terms of correcting for for kind of the negative externalities of all sure. of this. Sure. Well, stuff. I'll I'll continue my positivity here and say that a lot of the things are things that we are seeing. In 2016, the world added more renewable capacity than conventionals. Right. We are already a point now where uh, renewable energy technologies are becoming cost competitive and sometimes are cost competitive with conventionals. 
right? The uh, that's that's huge, right? So we're already seeing this this technological shift where. When I was an undergrad studying environmental policy, it was we have to get people to use more renewables to save the planet. And you could have someone who just doesn't care at all about the environment. That's not their motivations whatsoever. And you can convince them to use renewables purely on the financial aspects of it. Um, so you know, out of what we need to see happen is widespread adoption of renewable energy technologies. We need to be walking away from fossil fuels. We're going to have to leave some fossil fuels in the ground. Right? That, that's there's approximately 10,000 gigatons of carbon locked up in fossil fuels in planet Earth, right? There's about 740 in the Earth's atmosphere. If we burned all of that, and assuming it all would stay in the atmosphere, right, that's like a 12-fold increase in the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. Now, that is not Earth as we know it. That's not an Earth that would comfortably sustain, you know, 9 billion people at the standard of livings that we would want. Um, so we're going to have to leave some of that carbon in the ground, but we're moving that way. You know, I mean, that's 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 the market is pushing us in a positive direction right now. So, so <clears throat> market's pushing us in positive in a positive direction. I want to get into where politics is pushing us, because uh, <laughs> that's not so that's not such a, an optimistic scenario, and I think it's something we we might need to address. But uh, I want to start where where basically um, <clears throat> people's knowledge of this, the general knowledge, leaves off, which is yeah. with the Paris Climate Agreement. I feel like that's the last thing that entered the popular. Yeah. Uh, consciousness, and, and then we got consumed with an election and uh, <laughs> sort of mad transition period. Right. So the Paris Climate Agreement, as, as I understand it, if it were to be followed to the letter, would leave us uh, to use the me measure of degrees, above, uh, degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels at 3.7 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Um, can you give us sort of like a brief summary for, for the audience like a, of, of what exactly this plan does or asks countries to do uh, very politely and within in a non-legally binding way <laughs> one of the beautiful that's one of the, the kind of the interesting aspects of it is it really it's not prescriptive about how to achieve a goal it's yeah. just a promise to try to achieve a goal um, and that's that flexibility I think is needed right for political reasons for technical reasons um, you know the ways, the mechanisms by which we're producing emissions are different in different countries, and we're going to have to think about different solutions. We've got to think about what works in the context of our political system, the technology we have, with our you know, economy in the state it is, what's going to work for us. And the Paris Agreement gives that flexible mechanism to every country to, to do that. And I think that's, that's probably a good thing. Um, 3.7 degrees C is hot. <laughs> that's you know whether that's you know ecologically viable objective I don't know but it's something you know and, and having a target is if you don't aim for something you're always going to miss right? right so you got to have a target yeah you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take exactly <laughs> exactly yeah so um, do we do do we want to shift kind of towards the towards the 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 conservative political end of the right. some of the proposals that have been on the table, given that we're facing you know four years of a Republican administration who nobody really knows where exactly they stand. I mean, the signs aren't exactly good when it comes to the EPA, for instance, right? But um, I don't know if I don't know if you had a chance to read the the op-ed in the New York Times about the the proposal for the tax on carbon emissions that was submitted not. by basically right. by James Baker, Hank Paulson. Yeah. Um, who, who else? Greg Mankiw was on there. Yeah. So, so, so I'll I'll just kind of introduce this, just sure. so we're all on a, on a common basis. Is basically, you know, conservatives have generally ignored 
ignored the issue in, in a, terms of policy, uh, particularly they've been out of power and it's been their position to be contrarian regarding, regarding everything. So this policy comes from folks who were in the establishment of past Republican administrations. We have cabinet officials uh, like James Baker, who was Secretary, Secretary of, of Treasury State. and, and uh, Secretary, yeah, Secretary of State, of State. Uh, during the Reagan and Bush administrations. Uh, you've got Hank Paulson, who was in the Bush administration, uh, a former high executive at Walmart. And the idea that these people have is, all right, Republicans are in power. And so if they want to resist the overregulation that, that uh, uh, you know, liberals tend to, tend to want to push uh, and the regulations of the Obama era, like the Clean Power Plan. I, I just say that the, the so-called overregulation is a political talking point. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 I'm saying from their, say, from their yeah, point of view. From their point of view. This is how they're trying to sell it to conservatives, sure. is to say, look, if we want to get rid of these regulations, we can scrap them all and replace it with this very simple plan. Uh, which is a carbon tax, uh, which they uh, set at $40, uh, which seems somewhat... Yeah, I don't uh, know how they got there. <laughs> yeah, somewhat, somewhat arbitrary, but, yeah. but uh, the, these folks say uh, $40. They say it can be raised afterwards. Uh, they say the revenue from these $40 will be distributed back to the American people in the form of dividends checks that are not means-tested, but are simply uh, given to uh, any American citizen. And then finally, they claim that there are enough emissions reductions in this plan uh, to compensate for all of the regulations created during the Obama administration, and they claim they can get rid of all of those uh, regulations and, um, <coughs> and, and push forward with this plan. And so the, the idea is that this is a politically viable plan that conservatives can take up on sort of libertarian principles. Uh, and uh, it, it offers the best chance of, of Republicans moving forward with climate action. So. That's, that's really the brief of the plan, and to move forward with it, uh, I, I kind of want to talk about the history of climate policy from, from George H.W. Bush sort of through the present, and what a carbon tax represents versus the alternative, which is a cap-and-trade cap system. So do you think... And can, can, we talk, can we talk about the cap-and-trade system as well? Because I think it has a different relationship to the market, just in terms of how it actually interacts with economic output and energy consumption. So if we can develop the idea of, of cap and right. trade, so we can juxtapose the two different right. propositions. Right. Sure. I'll start there. There really are there are two categories of environmental policies. They're what are called market-based mechanisms and command and control mechanisms. So command and controls are the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots. So you know the regulations of the Clean Air Act. You can only emit this much. You know if this this is the acceptable level of these criteria pollutants in the atmosphere. Um, they are. Uh, Policies that, in general, you'd likely see conservatives objecting to, because they are they are definitively the heavy hand of government. It's specifying exactly what you can or cannot do, or what you should do, or what you have to do. Um, for a market-based mechanisms with regard to emissions, there are two options, and both the cap and trade and the carbon tax are market-based mechanisms. They should be mechanisms that should be appealing to economic conservatives or economic moderates, even. Um, in fact, we had a guest speaker last spring who's an alumni, Charles Hernick. He was a, um, a candidate for the House of Representatives um, in Virginia, uh, uh, running for the GOP candidate. And his big issue, one of his big issues, was, was climate change. And he was staunchly opposed to a carbon tax. He viewed that as being, you know, taxes being anathema to Republican ideals. And he was advocating for a cap and trade system. Um, so, you know, there, 
both those mechanisms are market-based mechanisms, but they're both different. So a carbon tax, the idea is that you are going to tax the externality. So, so you're going to, carbon emissions cause harm. Um, scientific community knows that. I know there's public debate about it, but there's really not the scientific community. We know that these emissions are causing harmful climate change. Um, and the carbon tax idea would be, well, if it, it causes a harm, let's have people pay for it. Right, so really kind of market-driven minded folks say, you know, if you're caught, as long as the harm is paid for, it's okay. Just tax it, right? Um, and then you're compensated. So you take that tax to compensate people who are hurt. So we take the tax from the carbon to, you know, pay for the people who are suffering the consequences of climate change, right? So Boston right now is entertaining the idea of building a seawall. That's going to cost us money to defend Boston from sea level rise and climate change. Use some of that tax to compensate us for that harm. Um, and also by making something more expensive, you anticipate that less of it's done, right? So it should drive down emissions and allow this compensatory mechanism inside the market. Um, cap and trades are also uh, market-based mechanisms, but the, the key difference is, is that with a tax, you don't know how much carbon is going to be emitted, right? That's an unknown factor. We don't know. Is it going to be a, in quote, safe level or a dangerous level? And again, there's a lot of debate about exactly what is safe, right? There is... We, we know the future of climate change, if it continues, is a bad one, but there's a lot of uncertainty about like the local impacts and how bad is bad. Um, but you know, if we can determine a acceptable level of emissions, and I'll be blunt, I think we've crossed that line, personally, just my scholarly opinion, but just opinion. Um, if we could determine that safe level, then you, could, then you could exceed that with a carbon tax, because people are just paying for it, right? So. You know, an example that I always use in classes when I talk about this is to understand the idea is that, um, you know, if you stay too long at a parking meter, we're going to fine you, right? That's a essentially a tax, um, but that doesn't stop people from spending too long at parking meters. There will still be people who spend that time there, but that's because that's acceptable, right? It's not destroying society. Civilization doesn't end because someone didn't put a quarter in the meter, you know, they didn't get out of class fast enough to feed a meter. Um, but we have command and control policies on things that are unacceptable, right? Murder is unacceptable. We're not going to tax you for murdering people. If we tax people for murdering people, there would be murder, and we, the, the society decided that that's unacceptable, right? So command and control does give a benefit, which is you get this certain outcome, mm -hmm. um, but it can be, it's, it's inefficient from the economist's perspective. So cap and trade is a market-based mechanism, but it includes a command and control component aspect, which is the cap. So the idea is that you establish a maximum allowable, permissible level of emissions or of whatever activity it is, and then you have a permit system, which is the trade, which allows people to buy and sell the right to take part of that limit, right? So it would be, you know, you are basically buying the right to emit a certain chunk of that allowable quantity of carbon. Um, so it is market mechanism because right. we do have this buying and selling, and, and the beauty of a market-based mechanism is the you know, the beauty of a market in general is, is incentives, right? It's not just the incentive of, of a fine or going to jail. It's the incentive of, well, I can make money if I do better. Right. Right. So in a cap and trade system, the person who can very cheaply reduce their emissions sells their chunk of the pie, right? right. They sell to people for whom it's very expensive. Mm -hmm. So everyone has an incentive to do better, but it allows the people who can more cheaply reduce their emissions to do that first. Right. Right. So that's the economic efficiency. And the same thing with the tax, right? If it's very expensive for you to reduce your emissions, you know, you're going to decide to pay the tax. If it's cheaper, you can reduce the tax. We don't know in the end how much emissions we're going to get. Cap and trade, you know that. You've got that certainty. 
So, so just for, for the listeners, just to make this extremely simple, let's say country X, the government says you have 100 units of carbon emission allowed, and there are 10 companies. Each yeah. company gets 10. Uh, and, and company A says, all right, well, you know, uh, we can use different mechanisms and, and lower our carbon emissions to seven, so they've got three extra exactly. units, and they can sell those units to a company B who actually needs 13. Exactly, who's unable to meet that goal. It's cheaper right. for them to buy the permit than to do it themselves. Right. So, but they're paying money for it. And if you're paying money for it, you constantly have an incentive to do better. Exactly. Right. So that's exactly. the incentive mechanism, which that same incentive would exist with the tax system. Right. But you'd always be incentivized to reduce your taxes. And if you could go carbon-free, you pay zero carbon tax. Right. So, so that deals with the first component of this plan, which is, you know, this is not a cap-and-trade plan. It is a carbon tax plan, which is interesting because it's contrary to what conservatives have pushed in the past. I mean, with in the 1990s, uh, George H.W. Bush um, uh, managed to strike an agreement to lower the emissions of fluorocarbons, I can never pronounce that, but uh, in order to protect the ozone layer. Why, what is the shift here from, from conservatives pushing a cap-and-trade market mechanism to this command and control, here's a tax? Well, I think it's good that it's happening, period. Okay. Because it's, it's, always, it's always struck me as strange that the existence of climate change became partisan. So I, I don't understand that. Uh, it, it really makes very little sense to me on, on face value. Um, and, you know, it's akin to saying, like, it, it's a, saying climate change isn't, isn't real is like getting a cancer diagnosis and saying, cancer doesn't exist, so I don't have it. Right? Denial doesn't stop the problem from existing. And, you know, it's the same parallel, right? So cancer treatment sucks, right? One in three Americans will die of cancer. We all know someone or have experienced cancer. Cancer treatment is hard, and there are people who choose not to be treated, right? And, you know, it's a, it's a reasonable, reasonable thing for someone to say, I don't think we should act on climate change because the costs are too high. Just like it's reasonable for someone to say, I'm not going to get cancer treatment because the cancer treatment is too, too, too high. But it's not reasonable to say there is no such thing as cancer. Now, I personally think we should be acting on climate change. A lot of people do. But I could have a conversation with someone who says they don't think we should because we could debate why. But I can give arguments for why we should. I can give you know, scientific arguments, economic arguments for why we should act. And, then we could come to a consensus as a democratic open society where we all have a say and we have a voice. But to deny its existence is, is irrational. Right. So I'm very happy to see that at least, you know, it's this let's do an acknowledgement of action. Right. Let, let's, let's play the flip side of that, which is, um, so James Baker, who signed on to this plan, mm -hmm. uh, took the sort of the flip side of your argument. He said, all right, well, I actually am still not going to buy into the notion uh, that this is happening for sure. So he's not yeah. denial. He's not denial, but well, he's doubt. So, well, well, so this is the argument that, he, that, that he's making. This is the argument that I've never understood why conservatives don't recognize it at face value because, honestly, in terms of outcome, like you said, you're denying the existence of cancer, right? It's Does it matter whether or not climate change itself is man-made in the sense that if it's happening, don't you have to correct for it one way or another, like you said, as an existential threat? Um, and one of the ways that you would go about doing that is by adopting all of these policies, et cetera, et cetera. The, the issue being, obviously, that the main driver of it is, is, is human activity. So if you don't acknowledge that, then you're less likely to correct for it, right? But um, 
Um, so, I, so, so as I was saying, basically, so you're less likely to correct for it, but at the same time, at the very least, you're acknowledging the existence of cancer, right? Which, at the end of the day, is better than not acknowledging it, right? <laughs> sure, right. Sure. Um, but, but Baker's notion is really that that you know you can have doubt, you can have doubt about whether or not it's occurring, but the risks are too big to say no. It's right. kind of like like yeah, yeah, Pascal's, Pascal's wager, wager yeah, yeah. which is like you know, we don't actually know, but. In the case that we're wrong, we should act, right. um, which is an interesting, um, it kind of gets into the ethics of it, which I think is the interesting part about the second component of this plan. So the first component is really just the debate over cap and trade versus carbon tax, which is you know a, a decades old debate. But this, the second part, the notion of dividends and how you distribute the, the funds, the revenue from this plan is interesting because ethically, from like an ethical perspective, to distribute the the revenue from, that you raise from this plan to every member of society kind of makes each member of the society a stakeholder in uh, in our shared climate, which which kind of aligns with with the ethical principle that you know the sort of tragedy of the commons idea. Can you speak to that? Well, I think that's actually the key element that makes this likely to be this, that, that truly makes this a conservative plan, right? So one of the kind of consistent conservative perspectives is that it's better for the citizen to decide how they spend their money than government, right? So the idea of giving that money back as a dividend, that is addressing that big issue because it's not, you know, it's not a federal agency, it's not the EPA taking that money and deciding how it's going to be spent, it's I'm just going to give you the check, right? So that's very consistent with kind of core conservative beliefs um, and I think that's likely the big, the big difference. Um, in terms of making people feel ownership, I mean, I think uh, the, the, the one of that's one of the nice things about a carbon tax in general, right? Because it's it makes you feel the responsibility for the harm you're doing, right? I drove to work today, right? I, I usually bike, but I drove today, and did I pay for the fact that I contributed to climate change? No, I didn't. Right? Like I felt no, I had no responsibility for that in any form, and I don't feel it. And no that's, yeah, right, right. That's, right. I mean, that's like one of the things that you know it's consistently you know economists argue is that you know you need to be incentivizing people so that they're aware that they in a way that represents the the full kind of uh, scale of the impacts of their activities. Right. So Massachusetts, we have an alcohol tax to pay for alcohol treatment programs, right? You know, it's it's that's that's right. kind of the idea putting that onus on you as a person who's doing the take well, part and, and beyond that, the, the, the equity perspective from, from my standpoint philosophically is also interesting because it implies a lot about what energy consumption means for society and what natural resources represent for us, right? Because mm -hmm. without getting into like a, a, pr a public versus private, a common versus uh, a proprietary or whatever, it, it implies also that, that the natural resources that we use contribute to the well-being of all of us, not just some right. of us, right? Sure. Even though those natural resources are owned, distributed, and, and monetized by, by a select few mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. So it, what's, what's interesting about that is all of a sudden we're recognizing that the consequences of that are not just private, but collective in a, in a societal way. Mm -hmm. So. Do you, th do you think that there's any wiggle room in terms of changing our conception of how we go about using natural resources and what energy consumption represents for us as a society? So I, many, many of my colleagues are, are, you know, are a few of my colleagues are true revolutionaries, right? They want to yeah. change the world. I, I think that, that, again, as someone who when you live and breathe the environment and climate change is all you think about. But I just... I don't believe that the average person in their daily life is thinking about nature at all, right? I think they're thinking about 
am I gonna keep my job today? Am I gonna keep the roof over my head? And what's on TV tonight? Or what can I watch on Netflix? Right? You know, I just think that it's a paradigm shift of that scale. They happen, right? There's historical precedent for like just society completely changing its vision about how the world works, right? You know, um, when we had school segregation when my parents were born in Boston, right? So radical changes can happen, um, but I, I just I I'm skeptical of those happening fa like fast for climate change because it's it's different because for the average person climate change is it's often referred to as a slow emergency right so seeing you know the mistreatment of minorities and during the civil rights era that was something acute that was there and the people in your face look I'm being you know there's there's an equity here we need to fix it um, and it, it was impossible to ignore right and thank and that was led to many of the success of the civil rights movement right with climate change though like Okay, so next year food prices might be up by a percent, right? Or uh, we're going to lose another couple centimeters of beach, right, next year. And so that, the, the fact that this disaster is spread across a long swath of, it's spread over centuries, spread over generations, right? Our, you know, your children will bear the, the biggest brunt of this if we don't act now, but it's slow. Like, you know, it's 60-something degrees all right, right now, and it's February, right? That's, that's outrageous, but does that feel like an emergency? Right. So that's, you know, I think that that's part of the, 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 the overarching challenge. It's easy for people to ignore this. One of my colleagues, Robert Coffin, just, just published a paper where they found out that it's, it, the places where climate change is, is happening the least strongly is where you get the biggest doubts about it. So, I mean, people apparently are responding to this natural change, but, um, <laughs> but I don't know if it's enough to, like, drive a social shift of a completely different conception of, of our relationship with nature. I don't know. Maybe yeah, that's, a, that's just a, just a, yeah. just a, just a um, kind of validate that point. Is that it's like, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously you know about this. Is when they held, um, I think in the Maldives, they, they actually held a conference on climate change underwater because for them, yeah. it's acute in <laughs> yeah. a yeah. serious way and they needed to illustrate just how acute yeah. the problem was yeah. for, 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 a, for their society. For Boston, which is a wealthy American city, it's going to be, it's going to cost us money. But, we're gonna build a wall before we let Boston go underwater. Yeah. If you're the Maldives, it's it. Right. It's 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 you know there's like it's there's a there's an income inequality that comes with climate change that global inequality comes with which that the, the the wealthy people and this is just this is this is a truth of of humanity. If you're wealthy, you're you're protected, right? Wealth protects you. It, it gives you insulation. It gives you like you know. And, and this actually kind of gets back one of the issues with the carbon tax is that it could be what economists call regressive uh, because lower income people are you know a wealthy person can buy a new furnace they can buy a new car a lower income person doesn't have the same flexibility in their choices so it's possible that a carbon tax could lead to issues of of, um, of, of social justice and inequality in terms of the impacts of it Right. I, so I think what's interesting when you mention, you know, the average person doesn't have this climate uh, consciousness. Uh, they're worried about their paycheck and what's on TV tonight. But what's interesting about this plan is that if you're getting a check every three months in the mail or every uh, month in the mail, yeah. then all of a sudden you have this connection not only to the sticks, you know, not only to the stick that we're, we're beating people with of the tax, you know, the, the fuel prices are going to go up uh, and such, but you have a connection to the carrot, which is, you know, for, for this... Um, strain that we're putting on ourselves, you're going to get the benefit. Mm -hmm. And let's not 
underestimate the fact we're talking about the moral implications. Let's not forget the political implications. I mean, the Republicans here, the conservatives, are using a strategy that Democrats have used in the past with things uh, like you know Medicare and Medicaid, which it creates its own constituency. Mm -hmm. You know, all of a sudden, once you institute a plan where people are getting checks every month, that's going to be really oh, yeah. hard to take away politically, right? Yeah, no, I, I, you raise a really important point. I mean, so Al Gore talked about revenue neutral carbon taxes in the '90s. Right, so it's not a new idea, and it's not a uniformly conservative one. The, the money back, I think that is really the unique kind of conservative element here, and and I think gives it a good shot of, of being viable. Uh, but one thing that we see in terms of, if you want to get someone to change, you got to make someone aware of what's going on, and in in you, if you get people's competitive natures involved, right? So. Um, you know, if you get if you pay electric bill, you're going to get a little graph that shows how much electricity you use compared to your neighbors, and <laughs> why is that? Well, that's because when people see that, they get competitive, right? They say, "Well, I, you know, I can use less." I can do better, yeah. <laughs> right? And it's, if you get a check, it's like I can probably, you know, find a way to make more out of this. You know, if you can get away, if there's some way to tap into people's competitive natures, that always that always helps, right? <laughs> right. Um, so you know, we're kind of coming to the end of our time here. I don't want to hold you too long. Is there some sort of, um, you know, summary summary thing that you take away from uh, from any of these plans, uh, or or what we can do over the next four years while we're kind of existing in a space where where it doesn't seem like there's going to be much action from from the watchdogs. Sure. So I mean, one, I think it's it's great to see conservative leadership, Republican leadership, put forward a plan. Right. That's great. And and it's just. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remain a, as apolitical as possible, but it is great to see that there is an effort on that on that front. That it's it's it helps it departisanize the issue, maybe right. if that's even a word. Um, the second thing is that you know we have a the Trump administration has made no bones about its its opinions about climate change, right? Trump, Donald Trump called it a, a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese to hurt U.S. businesses. Um, the head of the EPA is an outright climate climate change skeptic, um, so. You just can't count on someone else to solve the problem for you, right? I guess I think this is like an important thing. If you are passionate about climate change, what has changed over the last couple months is that you can't count on someone else to be, be the advocate. Like you need to do it, you know, be the change you want to see in the world, right, little Gandhi? So, you know, <laughs> it, it, that's just that's more true now than ever. Um, but it is really nice to see some of the Republican leadership saying, "Look, let's let's." make this not partisan, let's see if we can come up with a way to solve it, and that's great. And, and the, the other point also is that, you know, we're talking, we're talking about this from a domestic standpoint. You were just talking about kind of the competitive urges, and if there ever is a national competitive urge, it's in the United States. Um, <laughs> where, do you, where, where, do you, where do you kind of see that in kind of an international global context in which the Chinese last year yeah. added more renewable energy than the entire world combined? Yeah. Um, which is great, you, right? Which is which is <laughs> yeah. terrific. But, but can you can you kind of speak to the to the competitive dimension also? Because I think probably the strongest See, Barack Obama are, tried to play that right. card and it didn't work. Yeah, right. Barack Obama said, "Look, we need to be the world leaders in renewables, or we're going to fall behind." Which I, I I think I kind of agree with. I mean, this all the conversation about trying to protect coal jobs. That's like you know, if, if it's it's nineteen oh eight. And instead of embracing the car, we just we put protectionist policies to save the blacksmiths, right? Where would we have been if we put all this this national effort, our, our you know political capital and actual capital into trying to save the blacksmiths, right? Where would we be today? Uh, you know, it's, you got to kind of embrace the future, and it's it's disappointing to see this focus on trying to instead of 
retrain those coal miners to save the coal jobs. But you know, we tried that. Barack Obama tried that. So let's be the world leader. We lost that fight. That's that's unless you know we're the underdog now. The Chinese produce more renewables, not just in terms of power production, but they're the ones building the technology to to harness these these um, energy resources. Um, and if the U.S. wants to become the leader in that, we're going to have to play catch up. It's it's not about dominance anymore, maintaining dominance. That's over. It's gone. We lost that. So maybe that is maybe you're right. Maybe that would be can instill that competitive urge. But again, Obama tried and it didn't work. I hate for all your optimism to end on this note. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, we got to call it quits. Thank you so much for uh, being on the program. Appreciate right. it. Thank you guys.